Hello, and welcome to the Alliance podcast. I'm your host, Risa Courier, coming to you from the Humane Rescue Alliance in Washington, D.C. Today, I'm excited to be joined by our president and CEO, Lisa LaFontaine. Welcome, Lisa. Good morning, Risa. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing well, all things considering. It's hard to know how to ask and answer that question right now, but but I'm doing well. And it seems to change, right? Not only daily, but weekly. Hourly. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's right. Well, thank you so much for making the time to join us. And I've got a couple questions for you. And um, I think this is going to be a really great conversation. So last year was a very big year for our, our organization. We merged with St. Hubert's Animal Welfare Center in New Jersey could you tell me a little bit about the Humane Rescue Alliance and St. Hubert's Animal Welfare Center and the communities that we serve? So the Humane Rescue Alliance is, is the umbrella organization, and St. Hubert's is a part of the HRA family now. And we serve our communities in the D.C. metro region and in New Jersey through a really complete set of programs. I, I think one of one of the things I love about this organization is that we care for and serve all animals, whether it's dogs, cats, ferrets, rabbits, snakes, wildlife, farm animals. And we serve through a, a really broad portfolio of programs. So I like to tell people that we are part police force because we have field services operations in D.C. and New Jersey. We investigate cruelty to animals and have been doing so since 1870 in the District of Columbia. We have animal control contracts with 15 municipalities, the largest being the the District of Columbia government, but also animal control throughout northern New Jersey. And we have community programs. We have safety net programs for animals. We have we do adoption and sheltering. There really isn't anything we don't do when you look at our program and service offerings. And, and I consider that a huge privilege, but also a huge responsibility because, you know, because of the diversity of our programs, We really have an obligation to all animals, and it's one that we take very seriously. That's great, and I'm sure all of these programs are more important than ever for both New Jersey and D.C., given the challenges both those communities are experiencing related to COVID-19. That's right, Risa. We sat down at the very beginning, as you know, and we really mapped out what do we consider to be our most essential activities as we were staring down this pandemic coming down the tracks at Mm -hmm. us. And we really sorted very clearly what are the things we absolutely have to do under any circumstance and what are the things that are nice to have but could be temporarily suspended. And those conversations are always really hard because everything is important. But I think we did a really good job of going through and describing what are the things we absolutely have to keep doing and what are really core mission activities. 
And the wonderful thing is that both the governor of New Jersey and the mayor of the District of Columbia included all of those essential services in their orders when they shut down their very their respective jurisdictions. So there was really complete alignment between what we thought were our most mission critical activities and what our elected officials directed as essential activities. And so in some ways, everything has changed for us. And in other ways, we are doing exactly what we have always done. Lisa, you have spoken and written a great deal about the future of animal welfare as you envision it as one of collaboration. This principle manifests itself in a variety of ways, both at HRA and St. Hubert's, from supporting other organizations with resources and guidance to transporting animals from areas of need to places of opportunity. Has the animal welfare community's response to this virus altered your vision for the future? You know, it really, I think in some ways it has shifted the picture for me and other other ways it has made it even more urgent to start doing things that I've always thought were important to do. And I like to think that collaboration for us really starts within our organizations and with with our teams. And we really push our teams to to not just communicate and support each other, but also to be honest and to challenge each other. And I, I think that it really brings out the best in us when we do that, you know, in the in the right cultural setting, which I believe we have. And this challenge has I think really proven why that was so important to have because it has allowed us to quickly change course in so many ways. I have always thought that there was too much judgment between animal welfare organizations, too much competition, too many in some spaces, frankly. And that's that's one of the reasons I really believe in mergers and affiliations, because I think you can do more together and the more closely aligned you are, the more that you can do. And so I think the need for collaboration is even greater and the need for collaboration between animal welfare agencies, I don't think has ever been more important. And something that I think about a lot are the relationships that we develop through transporting animals. And transport is something I've been thinking about for 20 years now, ever since I started doing it when I was in New Hampshire. And I think the real the real beauty of transporting animals is in the individual lives that are saved, but it's also in the knitting together of the organizations on each side of the transport. So I'm really spending a lot of time thinking about how we can better support those shelters that send animals to us, you know, how do we help them get to a place where they're not dealing with the kind of overpopulation that they have right now? And it wasn't that long ago that Washington, D.C. had really tremendous overpopulation. And, and we were in that spot less than a decade ago. And, and we have moved from a place where in 2007, we were euthanizing the vast majority of animals when I arrived at WHS. And now now we're saving the vast majority. And we've done it through collaboration. We've done it through innovation. And I, I believe that with the right support and the right context, any organization can do it. And I know that every organization wants to do it. And so how do we help make that happen more broadly and more quickly? Yes. And it's it's an exciting time to be exploring that. And I've been really inspired by how many organizations that are coming together to share resources and best practices and SOPs. And many of these organizations prior to 
COVID-19 may have been a little offstandish with, you know, espousing different ideologies. And and now it's really interesting just to see how everybody's rolling up their sleeves and, and coming together and doing everything they can to help animals and serve their communities. Um, and it's sort of like a, we're all in this together philosophy. And that's something when, when I came to HRA, you, you were very clear about that. You believed that we could do better together and that organizations like ours that are well-resourced need to really extend a helping hand to those that aren't. Risa, I, I think that's so true now more than ever. And, you know, I think there's another really important collaboration and coming together that's happening that will forever shift the landscape of animal welfare. Um, and it's a change that I really welcome. And I, I think we'll always look at this as an inflection point, much like we looked at Katrina as an inflection point for how people value their animal family members and will do anything to to try to save that relationship, even if it means putting their own life at risk. I think the inflection point here is that this is a moment when the communities around us really turned to us, wanting to help, wanting to be a part of what we were doing. And and we're seeing in Washington, D.C. and New Jersey, which our, our communities are really different in yeah. these two places. And we are seeing complete similarity in the fact that the community is just ringing our phones off the hook with offers to help right now. And I think that there's something about the, you know, the isolation that people are feeling, being sheltered in place, the mm-hmm. fact that many people feel helpless. I mean, it's a scary time and people feel helpless. And so they want to help in some way and helping can mean fostering an animal or advocating for your local animal welfare organization. And I think it's this is a time where we should pivot from an internal focus to an external focus and really look at how do we make these relationships permanent that are forming right now between us and members of our community? How do we fully engage more? How do we trust more? How do we knock down some of the barriers that have kept us from trusting community members? And we're seeing that in the explosion of foster homes. We're seeing it in virtual adoptions. We're seeing it in the fact that our organization has decided to temporarily suspend spay-neuter surgeries, which is non-negotiable in years past, but we really believe that right now we need to preserve personal protective gear. We need to follow human health care in, in not doing elective surgeries. We need to minimize bringing people together in close quarters. And it's just being a good citizen, if you think about it, to to stop spay neuter. And it, it was a, you know, it was, that's a scary threshold to cross, but I don't regret it for a second. But think about what that says about our trust in community members who are adopting the animals. And I feel really confident that we're going to be reaching out to those folks as soon as we have capacity and they're going to be coming back in. And I, I think in some ways, the fact that they've adopted the animal and we're staying in touch with them means maybe we're providing better support post-adoption. So I look at this as a a moment that is going to change everything. And it's a change Mm -hmm. that I welcome and look forward to. Right. And it it is exciting to think about that some of these things that we are developing, like virtual adoptions and moving our adoptable animals into foster in a time of crisis are things that we could look at keeping around that this, you know, kind of freeing ourselves to experiment in this way allows us to remove some of those barriers. So it will be interesting to see what stays around. 
mm-hmm. and what organizations end up adopting in the long term following this situation. So, well, you mentioned something earlier about how HRA and St. Hubert's were able to really pivot and um, make the changes necessary to respond to COVID-19 because of the healthy culture in place. So I want to ask you about culture. HRA uh, invest a lot of resources and time in building a healthy culture. Why does building a healthy culture have to be an intentional practice? Well, I think that it needs to be intentional because you're going to have a culture, whether you build one or not. And so you're much better off trying to create the one you want to have rather than being passive and let one just take root around you. Because, and and, you know, I look at, (laughs) I look at my career and I think, how could I have known when I had a dual major in journalism and anthropology that it would prepare me so well for leadership. And, mm-hmm. and I actually look at it as really great preparation for leadership because journalism taught me to ask questions and be curious and try to uncover things and try to really understand things. And that has always stayed with me. But anthropology is the study of cultures. And so I am sort of trained to study and understand cultures. And I remember in my job interview, the board asked me what I thought would be the hallmark of what I wanted to do as a leader. And I remember telling them that I wanted to create a strong culture of empowered people who believed in themselves, believed in each other, challenged themselves and each other to be their best, trusted the community, stayed curious. And really what I wanted was to build solidity and stability internally among our staff group because the world throws us crazy every minute every mm-hmm. every time the phone rings every time one of our shelter doors opens every time one of our field staff walks into a home something really unpredictable and maybe upsetting or tragic or really emotional or really intense is going to happen and i feel like if we can have that stability and trust in our culture and in each other, we can face anything that the world throws at us. And so that that's always been why it's important to me. And I, I think that, you know, you really see who a person is and who an organization is, is in, in a time of crisis. And so it was pretty remarkable to me that our teams within a week had pretty much reinvented many of the major things that we do within a few days time. And I credit the strong culture for that because people were already predisposed to trust each other, to to dig deeper, to challenge, to ask. And and so I I think that it's just something that it's important to invest in all the time because when you need it, you really need it like we do now. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, I have to share a story that I, I tell people actually pretty often when they ask me what it's like to work at HRA and I had just started. I think I'd been there a couple, been at HRA a few weeks, and I was in my first meeting with you, and it was a meeting of director-level staff, and I think a few managers, and we were going through protocols for euthanasia, and there were behavior folks in there, adoption, animal care, and medical, and, you know, making sure that there's a cohesive and this multifaceted decision-making process, and We'd hit kind of an impasse in the conversation and everyone at that table turned and looked at you and you said, why are you looking at me? I am not HRA. (laughs) 
you are HRA and you can make this decision. And it was just like, I, I was, I think my jaw hit the table because, <laughs> you know, I had come from a very hierarchical organization and then moving into HRA where you're empowering managers and directors to make some of the most difficult decisions that an organization can make and work together to make those decisions and that you trusted them and you trusted their ability to collaborate, to come to the right decision was really an eye-opening experience for me. And that really set the tone for me on what this culture looks like. I remember that, Risa. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Thank you for noticing and remembering it too. I think that one of the you know, people ask me about leadership challenges a lot. And our our industry and our movement is really unique because we bring together a group of people who love animals and want to advocate for them and want the best for them and are, are way further down the continuum of loving animals and cherishing them than most people. And yet we have to see the worst things people do and the worst right. things that happen to them. And it's easy to feel powerless in the face of that. So I try to be really intentional about helping people feel powerful and helping teams feel powerful because I think the only way that you can really deal with that dichotomy over a career is to feel powerful in the face of it. And, you know, not just to look at the fact that you've just picked up this animal that's been abused, but to quickly pivot to, I get to find her a permanent home where this will never happen to her again, or I get to be the one to take this dog off a chain that he will never be on again. And I I think it's really important that people can make that emotional pivot so they feel powerful. I think it makes them better advocates for animals. And it certainly, I think, helps with their own well-being as well. Absolutely. And it's been great to see how in this time, a lot of these entrepreneurial and innovative ideas that are coming to the table for how to adjust our operations and programs to meet the needs of our community are coming from all levels of our staff. And a lot of them are being adopted. And that's pretty amazing. So I want to ask you about many of the services that HRA and St. Hubert's are continuing to provide. So that includes adoptions, fostering, field services, How are these services still being provided in light of COVID-19? Many other organizations have had to stop or curtail um, most of these services. So how how is HRA and St. Hubert still able to be out there and supporting the public in this way? We have the privilege and responsibility of field services in Washington, D.C. and in New Jersey. And we gave a lot of thought to what that would mean in this time. And I I think we really identified three challenges. One is how do we keep our officers and our teams safe? And, you know, you're always thinking about that with field staff is how to keep them safe. And this just this took on a a different personality because it was virus born. And so we thought we we made sure that they had the right equipment very early on. Um, We made sure that we talked to them about social distancing. And is it possible for people to bring an animal out instead of to go into a home and just looking at every opportunity for physical contact between people. And is there something, a a different practice we could put in place to minimize that? So I, I think making sure that they could be as safe as possible, 
You know, one thing that we're really concerned about is, are there things that aren't being reported to us right now that normally would be reported to us because people aren't out and about as much, so they're not as likely to see the injured wild animal in the woods or the stray cat. And so just thinking about how can we get messaging out to our communities so that our field officers can still do the same things they do and support the most and and rescue the most vulnerable animals. And then I think the other, you know, the other thing that we have really thought about is how how can we take a load off our governments and municipalities? Our elected officials are worrying about so much in terms of keeping the totality of their community safe. And we knew that we could say, don't worry, we've got this part. And so we're really proud of that. And we're really proud that our officers are such professionals that they can hold up such an important pillar in our communities. And, you know, in terms of our our staff and our shelters, we take in stray animals, we adopt out animals, we take in owner surrenders. And so we thought about, again, how do we keep our staff safe? And the, the best way we could determine that is to break people into teams where they were based at just one facility. And in D.C., we have three distinct facilities. In New Jersey, we have three distinct facilities. And in normal times, we move seamlessly between all of those, but well beyond any shelter or well before any shelter in place mandates were put in place. We assigned each staff member to a facility and we minimized movement back and forth so that we could at least keep teams safe and keep teams from exposing each other. Mm -hmm. And the other things that we did were um, we knew we wanted to empty our shelters out as much as possible. We weren't sure what to expect in terms of COVID driven surrenders or temporary housing because people got sick and, and people didn't have a plan for their animals. We've been in this now since the first week of March. So it's going on six weeks and we're just starting now to see some COVID exposed animals come in right now. It's a very small number. We're prepared if it gets bigger, but I'm, I'm so glad that we emptied our shelters out because it means so many of our animals are now in foster homes and have been adopted from foster homes and uh, as I as I like to say, our community really feels a part of us right now because they are our virtual shelter right now. Right. That's uh, and something you've always said is that the community is really the best shelter. Mm-hmm. So it's it's great to see how the community has risen up in that way. Well, we're almost out of time, but I do want to just ask you one more question. So many organizations around the country are facing really difficult situations right now from laying off staff to cutting programs. Do you have any guidance for those organizational leaders going through such a difficult time, particularly when the future remains so uncertain? Well, I think as leaders, what happens for our staff is such a overwhelming responsibility. And, you know, I think a lot about all of the animals and all the people that I'm responsible for. And, and, you know, if you're a, if you're an executive director or a CEO, that responsibility extends to livelihood and personal lives. And can people put food on the table? And do they have to worry about caring for their families? And so I wanted to, I I guess my only advice would be to just talk through how I approached it to see if anybody can get any nuggets out of that. But 
I wanted to do really worst case scenario planning right away to think about how bad could this be for us financially. And so together with our CFO and and our leadership team, we looked at a scenario where we have no more earned income coming in for the rest of our fiscal year, which for us was from the time in early March when we were looking at this through the end of September. And that means no training classes for the public, no vaccine clinics and wellness clinics, no no humane ed camps. I mean, it really meant shutting down any source of earned income we have. And we also made some assumptions that philanthropy might go down because we weren't sure of how people would respond to unemployment and the really scary headlines in the economic world around us. And for us, that that was a $3 million gap. And that's a big gap and no organization can really take that on. And so we started looking at, okay, what can we do about it under the umbrella of preserving essential services, preserving jobs, and doing the important work that needed to be done. And we identified a lot of cost savings, almost three quarters of a million dollars in just not buying things that we plan to buy, not doing trainings, not just anything that was at all extra anything that was at all extra. And we have a real spending freeze in place where our CFO is literally reviewing any expenditure over $50. And while that may seem draconian, it's all done in the spirit of cutting costs, not people. Uh, The other thing we did is we put a, a hiring freeze in place. So we're only hiring for essential positions and for uh, fundraising positions or, or positions that generate revenue. And we're trying to reallocate people internally into essential positions that open up. The other thing that we were lucky that we had built up some reserves over the years. And so together with our board, we agreed that we would spend during this time a portion of our reserves to keep our activities going. And then the final piece, uh, we have an amazing board of directors and they stepped forward with a $350,000 challenge to our donors, which is going out in the next week. And and so if that's successful, which I think it will be, that'll bring in 700,000 that we weren't otherwise expecting. So it's really been a multifaceted approach. And, and I think if people can take any part of that, that, that could really help out. I think the other thing I would say to people though, who are in leadership positions is, I know if you're anything like me, you're getting new information in by the hour. You're probably making more decisions than you've ever made in your life in a given day. Sometimes you're reversing decisions that you made earlier in the day. But I, I'm, I'm sure that like me, you're doing your best. You're, you're doing your best with every decision and at every moment. And so I would just tell people to be forgiving of themselves and to remind themselves that they're doing their best and also remind themselves that there's a there's a whole group of leaders of animal welfare organizations who are in your shoes, even if you're not seeing them, who are making those tough decisions and doing it with the information they have and in the best spirit. So I think just self-kindness, forgiveness and reaching out to other leaders and not getting isolated because it helps to know that everybody's in the same boat. Yes, it does. And I I think for everyone in it, it's not even just a localized or country related. It is globally. There is some security and in thinking about that everyone, 
around the world is is struggling through changing facts and an evolving situation. So, well, thank you so much, Lisa. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate your time. And for those of you who are listening, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you can get weekly updates with new speakers. And please feel free to drop us a line. Let us know what you think.